Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, we are very lucky to be hearing from Dr. Patty Ashley. Dr. Ashley is a licensed professional counselor. She integrates 40 years of experience in special education, child development, and psychology into her wholehearted work as a psychotherapist, author, international speaker, and authenticity architect teacher. She brings unique insights into the identification and treatment of shame, trauma, grief, and dysfunctional family patterns. And I read Dr. Ashley's book, Shame-Informed Therapy, and it's something that I've recommended to a couple of colleagues as well as a couple of patients to look into because I feel like we don't think enough about how shame impacts us and is very much the core of much larger psychological diagnoses or problems that we recognize. We can recognize depression. We recognize anxiety or panic. We don't always recognize the shame that's at the core of them. So I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Ashley today because, of course, her work, shame, and what happens with being a post-traumatic parent go hand in hand. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Robin, for having me so much. I'm so excited to be here. We are super excited to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about shame-informed therapy, what prompted you to write the book, how you even came at the study of shame? Yeah, so my background was in special education, and then I became a mom, and then I was terrified of messing up my kids. So I, I ended up getting a degree in early childhood education with the, the parenting expert in Virginia where I was living at the time, Dr. Catherine Kersey, who was an amazing teacher to me. And she suggested that maybe I work with pediatricians and do parent education because pediatricians aren't really trained in child development. So I did my, my master's thesis on parent education and pediatrics, got hired by the largest practice in Virginia Beach. And what happened is I, it was a great job. My children were toddlers at the time. So I had a phone line. Parents could call me and ask questions. The docs would pass out my number and well, child checks. And um, I created curriculums based on what the parents were asking. So I did Wednesday night, just overall parenting class. And then I did specials every month on topics. But what was happening was this experience of women mostly women that would come to these classes and the the dads came. It was like, cause she made me come. Right. And this was back in the nineties, which, you know, I know times have changed, but I'm not how, sure how much they've really changed in that period of time. They've some, but anyway, so the story was, I can't get this parenting thing. Right. I I'm ashamed of taking a parenting class. People want to know why am I taking a parenting class? And I thought, Oh my gosh, it's the most important job anybody will do. Why is there shame around parenting? You know, taking a parenting class and learning how to, to to be a good parent because we don't know, we didn't know until the last century how children develop. And so there's a lot for parents out there to learn. So I did that program for five years and decided I'd always wanted to be a therapist. So I went back and I got my PhD and did my doctoral dissertation on that subject, like women not feeling good enough. What is this about? I, I thought it was like how, you know, Donald Winnicott talked about the good enough parent 
And I was like, well, where is this good enough parent? I couldn't quite find it. So I kind of took a Jungian bent on the shadow, like, well, what's in our unconscious that's making us feel not good enough? So I did my dissertation on that. And then my, um, I wrote a book later called Living in the Shadow of the Two Good Mother Archetype based on that. And then it hit me that this, this Brene Brown comes out with, you know, her brilliant um, TED talk and every, and I was like, she's given language to this. She's finally naming the unnameable, you know, as Betty Friedan said in her book, The Feminine Mystique, you know, she called it the problem that has no name, you know, and that's what it seemed to be happening with these mothers is like, what we can't feel good enough. The problem that has no name is shame. So Brene Brown kind of names it. Yeah. And so, I, I just want to point out what you're saying. I mean, even the title of your dissertation, right? Living in the Shadow of the Two Good Mother Archetype. It's so true that we, I think most parents, I think for sure in post-traumatic parenting, have this assumption that every other mom sort of gets it and has this maternal instinct that they have and I don't have. Every other mom is just naturally a good mom, but me, because, and especially with post-traumatic parenting, because of my trauma background, I'm broken in that way. Not realizing that every single mom feels that way. I think dads do also, although it's talked about less, but post-traumatic dads will definitely talk about this. But there's this idea that everybody else has this natural mothering instinct. I don't. Everyone else knows what they're doing or naturally has like this perfect instinct for what their kid needs or what their kid doesn't need. And I don't. So there's something wrong with me when really most moms don't. We sometimes get it right. Like sometimes we get intuitive about reading certain cues from our babies. And sure, that's great. And we sometimes get it wrong. And that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're absolutely right. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And I've probably talked to several thousand women by now and dads too. And you know, it's a little different with dads, but that's exactly what they say to me. Everybody else seems to get this right. Why can't I get it right? Why can't I? And I'm like, you know, golly, I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Is 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 we don't talk about these things. And if we do talk about them, here's my other rant I go on to is like we have movies like Bad Moms, you know, right. where the solution is we all get drunk. And so, right. <laughs> so it's not that we're better moms. It's just that we're not worrying about it because of all the vodka, right? We don't really speak to the problem directly because why? Because it's shame and shame activates a response. And we don't really want to talk about shame, really, if you think about it. It's a hard topic to talk about. Even the word itself induces shame. And so, we don't like to admit that because if we look for support and we get shamed instead, which tends to happen on social media communities all the time, sometimes mm -hmm. you get support and sometimes you get those like haranguing, lecturing responses. You know, like I, I'm finding, let's say if, if you're trying like, you know, to give your kids like an all natural diet or something, I'm finding this challenging right now. Sometimes I just want to throw in the towel and feed them chicken nuggets. Right. Mm -hmm. And what you'll get is you'll get some people who will authentically be supportive. Like give yourself a break. This is difficult. Your kid won't die if they have the occasional meal of chicken nuggets, right? Like that kind of yeah. real mom response. And then you'll get those haranguing people who are probably counter shaming themselves, but they're, they're, you know, absolutely shaming in their response. So it's very hard to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. And mom shame is terrible. I noticed you, I haven't had a chance to listen to your podcast. I know you interviewed somebody like two segments on mom shaming. I think I saw on your list. I want to listen to that because mom shaming is a real thing. It's, it's, it's a big thing. And why is it? Here's what happens is judgment is a defense against our own shame. 
Right. So if I judge another mom, it's a way for me not to look at how I feel inadequate as a mom, you know, because I'm trying to be the, again, that's why I called it the too good mother archetype, you know, trying to be the perfect mom. You know, the other thing I found was the more books that parents read, the worse they felt, right. you know, it's like they couldn't be, they couldn't quite get it. And that's when I realized it's really in this unconscious place in our body memory, in our somatic memory, which is how I ended up developing shame informed therapy and answer to your question. Because I thought, well, we're talking about trauma-informed care. Yay. You know, that's great. And then shame is has a similar neurobiology to trauma in the body, but the difference is it's implicit, whereas a trauma is more explicit. So if something bad has happened to us and we know what that event is, if we know what that event is, we can work with that. But if there's shame that's created this nervous system response that we can't really attach to an event it's more, it's harder to identify and work with. And so I thought, boy, that's really what my work has always been about. And what I've learned with this, this work around mothers not feeling good enough and just broadening into the experience of how we don't feel good enough. And I like to go back to Alice Miller. I don't know if, did you read any of her stuff? Or all about like the, the roots of where our child rearing myths come from, mm-hmm. right? Those harmful beliefs that we have. Because if you think about it, you know, they're saying now that we're carrying 14 generations of our ancestral DNA. And if it wasn't until the and I really like to normalize this for parents, because I think parents, particularly moms, internalize it and think, what's wrong with me? I must be doing something wrong. So I like to demystify that in general. Just, well, wait a second. Let's look collectively at what's going on here. We're talking about the mid 20th century. We do research on how children develop. And we start telling parents that they ought to be doing it this way when our body has the DNA imprint of what's been going on for 14 generations. And if you go back to the 18th century, which is when Alice Miller, who was a Swiss psychoanalyst, did her research on the parenting, what she called poisonous pedagogies, you know, the right. things that, that um, the parents were taught they were supposed to do, like break the will of the child, beat the devil out of them. You know, a two-year-old having a temper tantrum was possessed by the devil. I mean, this is what they were really learning as truth. And that's still in our DNA. That's still imprinted in our somatic body memory. And so I really like to demystify for parents that, you know what, we're writing a whole new story. And that's what shame-informed therapy is about, is writing a story that's never been written before, which makes it even harder because now... We're living in a in a world very different even from 100 years ago. I mean, my mom grew up in 1914 and she has pictures of, you know, the, the first automobile, the Ford, you know, right. driving across the country and changing the tires like 10 times. And it takes two weeks to, you know, and so now we're global. We have the Internet. We have so much information in front of us. And right. it's like there's so much catching up to do. And so the story of what it means to be a healthy, functional parent putting all the pieces together that we've learned from child development and really, you know, getting it embodied is a big piece of work. And we have to have a lot of compassion for ourselves as we are teasing it out and uncovering it and discovering it and and being curious about it. Also, what's very true, what you're saying is if you even think about how education has changed, you know, I just had this experience where my mind was a little blown. I went to do a, classroom observation of a student. And I've been in various classrooms, but I haven't happened recently been in like a math instruction classroom in a while. Happened to be, I went in during math time in this classroom. 
And I was blown away. Like I took second grade math in like the early 80s, right? And back then we were not taught the way kids are taught today. And what was really interesting to me is this was not a super professional, super experienced teacher. This is a teacher who's in grad school now, young, enthusiastic, but just teaching the way she's been taught to teach. And the classroom was participatory and the materials were colorful and the kids were singing their math song. And then when they when they agreed and disagreed with an answer, they stood up and sat down. So it wasn't just like, here's your math worksheet. Do it and be quiet. Nobody make a sound. Hand me the math worksheet. You got three wrong. Fix them. Like there was none of that, right? It was so beautifully designed. And this was not a super professional classroom. This wasn't like a university school where there was some sort of a lab program. This is just like how young educators are taught to educate nowadays. So child development informed, right? And I was just sitting there thinking like, I hated math when I was in second grade. I would have loved this math class. Mm-hmm. Like, just like the recognition of, wow, education has come a far way because it's not 1983 or whenever it was, not that long ago, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the light years we've traveled and yeah, so we're asking, we're asking parents to travel light years in terms of their parenting approach. And then they're expecting themselves to just do it. And because they've read a book, but what their brain and instincts sometimes are telling them to do is different or what they've heard, what they've seen model. Because I think what happens is, particularly when we're under stress, we tend to do the things that are encoded in us by our parents' child rearing, by our grandparents' child rearing. So even if we hold an intensely different value, when we're super stressed out, the words that are going to come out, right? How often do moms say like, I sound exactly like my mother? I promised myself I would never sound like my mother, but I sound exactly like my mother. Right. 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 Absolutely. And I, I, I loved hearing what you, you're describing because I've also seen a lot of the old school teachers still te- trying to teach the old way. And, you know, I think we have a long way to go in terms of learning this new information and doing it different. And I think schools have a lot of catching up to do, too. I'm all about, you know, kids are born intrinsically wanting to learn. And if they're provided the right environment, they're going to excel. But we have kids getting to third grade and being depressed and anxious and hating school. And then we have kids getting to middle school and being suicidal and to high school and being homicidal. So, I mean, we've got a lot of work to do with the school system and just all of it, because it all goes back in my version. It all goes back to Alice Miller. I, you know, it makes perfect sense that these are the things that have been going on forever, even spanking, you know, you know, um, you know, people still think, well, you know, I was spanked and I turned out all right. And, you know, it's the only way I can control my child. And, you know, the thing about, you know, good parenting and, you know, understanding what comes up for us, because you're right, what you were saying is the the nervous system response is usually, you know, a reaction, as Stephen Porges says, every action is a reaction in seeking safety and survival. So we're seeking emotional safety and our frontal lobes offline. And so to get the frontal lobe back on online and to take a deep breath and to move into curiosity, I call it the ABCs, acknowledge I'm having a feeling, take a deep breath and use one of the four C shovels, curiosity, compassion, connection, and courage. So it's kind of like to help get that frontal lobe back online and kind of take a step back and realize, again, we're writing a whole new story here. This is something that's never been done before, you know, to really realize that you're authoring a new story that is going to be great. But for anyone who's ever written a book, you know, (laughs) 
It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of introspection. It takes a lot of reworking. And it's the same thing with parenting. We've got to be really gentle and compassionate with ourselves and that we're learning. We're all learning this together. Right. That's very true. And also true that um, I think rewriting a book is harder than writing a book sometimes, right? Like first draft kind of comes out actually rewriting it so that it says what you meant it to say, you know, as somebody who's been writing a book, that's much, much harder. And I think that's what happens in therapy, right? We're rewriting a script. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, um, which is when you were saying about trauma, right? And about shame and how shame is so intrinsic and it's so implicit and we don't even see it. This is why I have a belief. A lot of parents come into post-traumatic parenting saying like, I did trauma therapy, so I should be fine. And what they don't realize is that trauma therapy can be necessary, but not sufficient. And Mm -hmm. after trauma therapy, so after all that, like cognitive processing of the story and reprocessing our story, which is kind of those top down approaches, right? Where we're like retelling the story, re-understanding the story, giving ourselves permission to have been young when we underwent our trauma and things like that. There's still that implicit sense of shame that sometimes trauma therapy doesn't reach. And it doesn't mean the therapy didn't work. It doesn't mean that the therapy wasn't, you know, good therapy. It just means that you went as far as you could then. And now there's this other whole piece that's much deeper that also has to be done. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly what shame-informed therapy is about. And it's really interesting territory to enter into because shame induces shame, like I said. So we would much rather do the the top-down cognitive work and change the story that way. But what we have to acknowledge is that it's in the body memory. This is somatic. So sensory motor psychotherapy, Pat Ogden is a colleague of mine, and her work is about both top-down, bottom-up. So you can't, uh, you can't just do the, you can't change it in your head. And that's the hard part because we want to, because we're, we live in such a logical world that you know when we get into it's the emotional literacy part that we're really newborns really unfamiliar with because well the other part about life is lifespans are a lot longer now so not only do we have this global technology and education we're also living a whole lot longer than we did 100 years ago one of my teachers in my early childhood program um said we didn't have the luxury of looking at our emotions before. Right. And, and I never thought of it that way as a luxury. But really, if we live to be 80, 90, 100 years old, we got a lot of time and we have heaters and air conditionings and, you know, modern conveniences. And but we're so busy trying to figure out how we're going to pay the mortgage and have all the gadgets and everything we need that we don't really have this space. I always I always say, you know, <laughs> here's my rant about the robots. Like they're building all these robots. I'm like, and they're going, we're going to Mars, you know, how much money are they spending on the robots and going to Mars? Why don't we spend money on our emotional literacy and really valuing going inward and really digging up some of this old stuff that's in our DNA and changing epigenetics. Um, Bruce Lipton is a, a hero of mine in terms of he talks, he proved that we can change our DNA, but in order to change it, what do we have to do? We have to go back into that, the brainwave, early brainwave state, which is like a hypnotic state, theta waves for seven years when all this stuff gets set up. 
And we have to give the body a new message and we have to do it over and over and over and over repetition, repetition, repetition. So what happens, people don't want to do that, right? Because that feels like, it doesn't feel like I'm doing the work. It feels slow. It feels like Lucy. It doesn't feel like what they think of as like psychotherapy or like, how is this related? You know, they're very, a lot of, a lot of patients that come into me are very task oriented. Like I I need to like clean out my trauma as though it's like a closet that I need to spring clean. Right. They don't want to necessarily see that connection and how deep we have to go. Yep, exactly. And so that's why this work is so delicate because to help someone be brave enough, that's why one of the sea shovels is courage, be brave enough to enter into that place and really look at, oh, here's this feeling, this feeling. I have this whole excavation exercise that I use all the time, you know, to help people connect with their feelings and and then imagine, imagination. So this is all right brain psychotherapy. I'm a big fan of that too, like Alan Shore and affect theory. So the right brain develops. This is why my early childhood background is just so priceless to me because I know so much about attachment and early childhood development. The first three years, the right brain develops first. And that's where we hold our sensory, emotional, creative, imagination. And that's where the attunement and the attachment is so important. But if we're carrying all this DNA that needs to be understood and rewritten, we have mothers who are are really trying to do the best they can, but they've never really had that mirror themselves. And so that's when we got into this overindulging parent, overgiving, trying to give my kids everything I didn't have. And then the real work is let's come back and do our own work. Where, how did your shame get set up? So that, that's what they've learned though, is that if that first three years, you don't get that optimal attunement and your needs aren't met, whatever attachment style you might pick up also is going to create this feeling of I'm not emotionally safe, which is as Brene Brown defines shame is that feeling of being tragically flawed and unworthy of love and, and love and belonging. And so this is what we're, I'm always getting to, you know, cracking that code for people is like, okay, we're getting to this now, this feeling, yes, in my body is, I don't believe I'm worthy of love and belonging. <gasps> you know, that's hard to admit. So now what do I do? Because the truth is I am worthy of love and belonging, but my body doesn't believe it. So that's when we get into the somatic piece and the repetition and the meditation and I, in the right brain is creativity and play you know we know so much now about play we can learn from kids about play so to create experiences for ourselves that feel good around that cognitive thought of i am worthy of love and belonging well let me take that into something that i like to do that feels good like if i you know whatever kind of creative thing i do and most parents are like or people Right. They're intimidated by creativity because that's, again, been squished out. So that compassion and courage and curiosity and connection, those four sea shovels are just how the only way we're going to dig up that shame, Um, because you're right. And shame and trauma often go hand in hand. And because shame is implicit and unconscious and actually induces more shame, it's real tricky to to walk that with a person to help them feel safe enough to enter into that, that territory. Um, But when they do, man, that's when the, that's when the light bulbs happen and they start getting it. But then what happens? We go back into 
an old pattern and then the shame comes up again. So it's, it's again, this being gentle and compassionate with, compassionate with ourselves and knowing that we are writing a story that's never been written before. Right. And it's really hard to do. I recently had this experience with a patient, a young woman who um, has very complicated feelings about her mother. From her narrative, it seems like her mother has undiagnosed OCD. So when she, and I find this in general, whenever I treat kids who are specifically the children of mothers with undiagnosed OCD, it's very, very difficult because there's this mingled guilt and shame and love and hatred because OCD, of course, is not rational. So it's not the parent's parenting. Sometimes it's the disorder that's parenting, and that's very hard. And we, we've we been doing this for a while where she'll say cognitively, I get it. I have to set limits with my mother. I'm allowed to set limits. I'm allowed to set boundaries. I'm allowed to be my own person and I have my own life. And recently we had this breakthrough where she was saying all of that stuff. And I've been pushing her to like, we need to go to the somatic side. It's time. And she sees that as very loosey-goosey and very like, you know, that's not real therapy. And as she's telling me how I need to set a boundary with my mother and I was really good this week, like we figured out what my values are and we figured it out like, like these are my values. So this is the amount of time that I'm going to give my mother and the rest of the time I'm going to focus on my pursuits. And I really successfully did that. But as she's talking, she's pinching herself really hard, like enough to leave like real bruises. And I said to her, you know, I'm watching you say all this with a smile on your face and to a certain extent pride. And I'm also watching you pinch yourself. So I have to wonder, like, what is your left hand thinking that your brain isn't thinking? Because you've left much and she was startled. Like she looked down at her arm and there were these red patches because she had been pinching so hard that, you know, she was leaving this bruise. And she's like, oh, that's just a habit. I said, or there's a part of you that's very not comfortable saying something even mildly critical of your mother, even though from a logical standpoint, you understand your mother's limitations. You understand that she does the best she can with the tools she has. Some of her tools are very limited. You understand all of that cognitively, but there's a part of your body that doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the breakthrough. Like when she actually saw her own pattern and saw herself really pinching herself, which it it, it hit her because she was like literally looking at these red marks that I don't think she was cognizant of leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so good to point that out because again, there, there you have that experience of what's happening in the body. And sometimes people don't even know because they're so disconnected from what is happening in their body because they're so in that cognitive process that we we really value our cognitive, you know, skills and they're helpful. <laughs> we need them. And, you know, when we don't pay attention to these other parts, we wonder why we just keep spinning our wheels. So that was a great technique of just pointing out, I noticed this, that you're doing that. And now it's something she's going to be aware of. And that's sometimes the invitation into our bodies because it is very hard to Mm -hmm. get people to want to come into their bodies. I actually love the exercise in your book where you did the I am enough exercise and you drew that little enough character. Oh, you want that was adorable. I thought that was so helpful. I know we're just on an audio audio right now, but this is my little enough I'm showing you. I use it all the time. I have it in front of me. Yeah. I mean, because what happens when you look at the enough? It's this funny little character, those of you that are listening, that um, it just says, I am a N-U-F-F, Nuff. And I have these little postcards. I actually want to make stuff Nuffs and different Nuff products right. eventually. But, you know, you look at it and what happens is you exhale because you smile. And you, and you again, you're, you, you can't be in shame when you're, you know, in curiosity and laughter. 
Because again, now you're activating the right brain. And that's what we want to do is we want to activate the right brain, feel good by, and by giving it that new message of I am enough. So yeah, it's, it's a real, you should make enough stuff, you know, and like, it should be like stuff that moms could like have a coffee mug, have a stuff plushy that they could hug something hanging in their car. So every time you look at it, you could sort of have that meditation of I am enough. Remember? Well, I, and I bought the website, the enough stuff. I just don't have the, the, you know, the, the, the peeps that I need to help me create it all. But yes, that's definitely what I want to do for that very reason. Because again, back to the repetition, 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 and not being ashamed that you have to do it over and over again. What I often, what I do with my clients is I, I say, well, let's do the math. Okay. So if you had this message of not being good enough, because somebody said, I mean, even with the subtleties of, I call it sap, the subtle abuses of power, right? Right. You know, people, big people who say to kids, what's your problem? Like Bruce Perry's new book that he wrote with um, Oprah, what happened to you instead of what's the matter with you? It's these things that parents still and, and teachers and other adults say, sometimes they think they're being funny. But children under the age of seven, it's all a real thing. It, it, they take it in as if that's true. So if you say, what's your problem? Right. That becomes, I am a problem. Right. Like you're such a space cadet or, you know, all of those kinds of things. Kids don't, first of all, kids don't have the adult sense of humor. So mm-hmm. they don't get it as a joke. They get it as a description. And like, you are a space cadet. This is the definition of you. We look you up in the dictionary. It says space cadet. They're not seeing it as, oh, she's making a joke. She's in a bad mood. She had a fight with her husband this morning. Her car broke down on the way to work. They're not seeing any of that stuff when they're, when they're little. And even when they're older, depending on temperament type and parenting and things like that, children mm-hmm. take in these messages. And then these are the messages. I actually did a shame journaling prompt on my um, Instagram when different people were messaging things in. But I remember this experience I had with shame that the teacher did not mean to harm me, but she, I raised my hand in a science class in about second or third grade. And I asked the teacher what a certain word in our textbook meant. And the teacher said, instead of trying to figure out what hard words mean, you should be focusing on writing more neatly. Your papers are always so messy. Right. And I took from that, that my intellectual curiosity was not okay, that there was something inherently unfeminine about my intellectual curiosity and that it didn't matter what my thoughts were as long as they looked pretty on the page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my counter shaming experience was going to grad school where lots of people who are comfortable with messiness and big ideas and wanting to know what things mean, you know, reside, right? Like that was my Emerald City. That was counter shaming for me. But it was a shaming experience. I am sure if I went back to that teacher, she wouldn't even remember that she taught me. Mm-hmm. And she probably would not remember making that comment. And if she did remember, she would remember it as like, oh, I made jokes like that to my students all the time. I care about penmanship and I'm I'm an old school teacher. You know, she would say something along those lines. She didn't wake up that morning with like the intent feeling of like, I am going to shame a child and like whip her into shape. But the experience of it was shaming. Right. Because again, this is why I love Alice Miller. If you can connect the dots all the way back to that's what, what, you know, parents and teachers were taught to do. They don't, they don't, until they really enter into the territory of looking at what that really is and the seriousness of it, they're going to keep doing it. My son, when he was in third grade, the teacher had a uh, level system. And so the, you know, you had the color codes and then the bottom, there are four colors. And then the bottom was just a white slip. 
So he came home one day with a white slip. And you know what it said? You're going to love this. It said, thinking in class. Oh, wow. That's I know. Shame for. And I said, Michael, what were you thinking? And he said, well, we had our textbooks open and we were reading about Native Americans. And I started thinking about, and he was like, what it must have been like in Utah. I mean, he had this whole brilliant imagination around Native Americans that was going on in his brain. And he got shamed with the worst level. Right. And it was called thinking in class. And so this to me, again, is how schools have a long way to go. But yeah, those those sap, that subtle abuse of power that happens all the time. The teacher didn't, like he said, consciously, I'm going to shame this child and get these kids to do what they want to do. I mean, they were back then that was in the, the 90s as well. And it was that's what teachers did. The point systems and the check charts and the levels. And she could have yeah. given you an elaborate rationale that she's teaching him frontal lobe capacities that you're supposed to remain on task. And well, we know that education is all about sparking thinking, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what we want. We want that, like what Angela Duckworth calls grit, like but that idea of passion and perseverance, not just perseverance, right? We're supposed to be passionate about what we're learning. And like, cool, that's how Native Americans cook. Wow, I wonder what that would have been like. Oh my gosh wonder what it would be like to sleep near a stream or whatever. That's great. That's like that teacher in a sense should get a gold star. And then she went and killed it. Exactly right. I mean, how much learning could happen in those conversations? So, you know, when you talk about post-traumatic parenting, I just want to say my experience of um, when I learned all this and when I learned about child development, I thought we all have some, you know, we talk about big T's and little T's. Like we all have some form of trauma because these subtle abuses of power are trauma. But again, they're more implicit because we think that it's normal. And that's the part where I'm saying instead of making robots and going to space, let's spend money on educating families and teaching this, you know, with no shame about it. This is just it. Let's learn it. Um, And so John Bradshaw, who I really liked a lot, um, had said at some point, he said that, you know, he thinks that all families because of that, you know, have trauma. You know, and right. I and I think, you know, because we again, we think of trauma as explicit, but the, these subtle abuses of power, these implicit little teeny messages that get set up, really, um, we need to talk about it more, which is why I'm so glad you do what you do. And even the best parent can sometimes have that. There's that trauma of sort of misalignment and misattunement that mm-hmm. no one is attending. No one's trying to do something wrong. They might be attending to the wrong thing. They might not have insight. They might be focusing on one child when another child's in crisis. And all that's normal, and especially when we're dealing with a family where there's more than one kid, those things happen. I agree with you. Nobody escapes into adulthood unscathed. It's not like any of us come into adulthood having never had a shaming experience and never had a trauma experience. We've all had at least little t traumas. It doesn't mean our parents were terrible. That doesn't mean that our teachers like, you know, woke up in the morning to be evil. It just means that an experience happened and it was overwhelming and it changed our view of the world and of ourselves and it inspired shame in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times people feel guilty. Like I had a mom tell me that she didn't want to tell her sister the name of her parenting class. She was taking my post-traumatic parenting course. She didn't want to tell her sister the name because she said, I know that when I tell my sister the name, she's going to right away come back with, but we had wonderful parents. And yeah, maybe you had wonderful parents. And that's probably true. And yet we still don't escape into adulthood unscathed. 
Mm-hmm. You know, of course, there are those of us who had parents who were inescapable, whether it was under their control or not. There are certainly abusive parents in the world. And there are certainly parents who are so busy dealing with things like poverty or discrimination or an illness in the family, things like that, that are, it's just inescapable. Humans can only handle so much stress in a given day. We know that stress makes us get out of attunement with the people around us. And that that's not under a parent's control. She has a child in the family with cancer, or if she has an ill spouse, she's sick herself, he's sick himself, right? Those kinds of things are going to impact how we parent our children. And we can't necessarily blame ourselves. Again, that's shame on the part of the parent, right? Mm -hmm. They are doing the best they can usually with the tools they have. Mm -hmm. And that, and yet we can still be traumatized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you just said goes back to Alice Miller again, because the goal was to break the will of the child before they were old enough to remember. And then children become servants and they're not going to talk badly about their parents. So when you say, well, I had an okay childhood, that's part of that story that got set up so long ago that's still in our DNA. And so it's so interesting, right? Those those families when they say, oh, I had great parents. Well, yeah, a lot of us had really, really great parents. And there's so much in our unconscious that still is unexplored and undeveloped in order to create this wholehearted experience of being human. I mean, look at what's going on in the world right now. It's a little nutty, wouldn't you say? <laughs> right. And I always say, you know, we just had this huge shooting here in, in Boulder in the grocery store. And, you know, and we were just on the anniversary of the Columbine shooting, which was um, one of the first school shootings on April 20th, 20 some years ago. And, you know, we talk about gun control and, and what to do with the guns, which I agree. We don't need the guns. But let's talk about what's going What What would make somebody that angry? I don't know if you read this article. It didn't really, the news story didn't really follow very far. And I don't remember the details, but there was a mom who reported her son because he was stockpiling weapons and he was planning a school attack. And he was really smart about like staying off social media and doing it really secretly. But he had a physical person in his home, his mom. And she, there was an article about her where she was saying how she tried so hard to get mental health help for her son. And it was just a narrative of the failure of the system because you have a mom who's not a trained mental health professional. And you and I, I think we both said, you know, I don't want to mess this up. So I'm going to go to grad school. But that's a luxury that we had that we were able to do that. Right. You know, this mom was, you know, a single mom working and trying to raise her son. And she just didn't have access. And it was just the story of denial after denial of services where the, the kid was in an IOP. He was doing better. So the insurance is like, all right, you're doing better. Leave the IOP you're doing better, why would you leave it? And IOP is an intensive outpatient program for those of you who are listening who don't have the jargon, right? So the kid was in this like intensive program where you basically go to therapy all day long. Instead of going to school, you have a little bit of schooling too, so you can keep up with your classmates. And then eventually you get transitioned back to school. And the mom felt like he needs another year of this. And the insurance company gave like 10 more sessions. They covered like five sessions of psychotherapy. You have a child who's dealing with a mental illness as well as living in poverty, other you know, problems and pinching him, bullying and things like that. Five sessions of psychotherapy is just not going to cut it, right? Mm-hmm. And this mom was writing about how difficult it was for her to call the police on her son, as she put it. Mm-hmm. But she was doing it to protect her son, you know. But I can even understand that shame that she felt, right? Calling the cops on her son, which, of course, what she was doing was really protecting her son from himself. But that failure of our system, like you're saying, why is money going to sending robots to outer space 
when there's a little boy somewhere who could have been helped and lived that same brain that had the ability to plan the logistics of a major attack is a brain that could have been the brain that cured cancer, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of putting our money into robots in space, you know, into building fancy buildings, we could put our money into building people, right? And in the end, think of where the human race would go. Children are our greatest natural resources is what my mentor would say. And, you know, I think that's, I mean, we would only need Robin 1% of that money really too, you know, to create really solid programs, but we don't even do that. I mean, talk about insurance. I was just (laughs) telling a colleague I have, I take Blue Cross and I have a client that I've been working with since September that I haven't gotten a dime and they can't seem to find my claims. And I've been going around and round and round and rerouted for nine months now trying to get paid on this client. And I thought, you know, no other business would survive if they treated customers the way these insurance companies treat us as mental health providers. And they, don't, they haven't raised their fees in over 10 years either. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to get off of insurance, but I do it to help people so they can afford the services. But again, if we just took 1% of that money and put it into developing quality programs that really address this without shame, address shame, no shame about shame, right? And let's talk about what's been set up in our unconscious and our nervous systems. Let's talk about how we get dysregulated, you know, when we're so afraid right now of, of uncertainty and this virus. And that's what I found with my clients. And you probably saw it too this past year is this dysregulated state because we're all in trauma. This is, this is big trauma. Um, that we're all in in various degrees, whether we've actually experienced a loss or witnessed a loss and or lost a job and or lost our connections with our, we're all in trauma. And so you are, by the way, hitting to my other big rant that I'm always having about the insurance companies. I mean, think if the car companies had to like operate the way mental health professionals do. So you buy a van and then they have to like call you for payment. And then every time you're like, sorry, you're talking to the wrong department. You know, you filled it out in blue ink, not red ink, not blue, black ink, not, you know, on alternate Wednesdays, pink ink, whatever. And then when you finally, when they finally get a hold of someone two years later, so that money could have been earning interest, right? Then finally it's like, well, the card's depreciated. So you've really committed fraud. Like we don't cover that diagnosis in 2021, but we covered it in 2018. And now you have to prove to us that you haven't defrauded us. And then we'll pay you like it, it just boggles the mind the way it's set up. Yeah. Right. Not to mention, like, you know, like you said, we the, the managed care companies haven't raised their fees. So that doesn't. So there's such a barrier. You have to be so savvy to access those benefits that that already is a self-selection bias. That's already unfair to people who are overstressed with other things. And they're definitely I mean, I have so many colleagues who will say, like, I just ate the loss because it would I would it would spend more of my time and money calling this insurance company and fighting with them. Like when I figure out what my rate is per hour, I, I I've lost money being on hold with this insurance company. Yeah. So forget it. I'm just gonna eat the loss. It's easier. Yeah, exactly. And again, if we could get one percent of that money and we could create these programs, you know, and maybe it'll happen. You know, I'm hoping it will because again. And that's why I like what you're doing, because we need to have these conversations. These are hard conversations to have, because you're right. We live in this world where parents come in and they want the um, the one, two, threes. Give me the bullet points. You know, how can I stop my child from having a temper tantrum and give me the quick cookbook answer and let's be done. You know, right. we don't want to talk about the unconscious. We don't want to talk about right brain development. We don't want to talk about our sensory experiences because that's too elusive. It's too hard to define. It's more 
um, quality, qualitative versus quantitative, you know, and and yet that's really where the change happens. It's in connection. It's in relationship. It's in empathy. You know, as Brene Brown says, the the um, antidote to shame is empathy. And a lot of us don't even know how to have empathy. We feel sorry for people, but we we enter into somebody else's experience. We feel what they're feeling. And that's the hard part about parenting is tolerating our children's discomfort. And I think a lot of the suicide and homicide that's happening in these young kids is that they don't know what to do with their uncomfortable feelings. And when their parents can't tolerate their uncomfortable feelings and try and talk them out of their feelings and try and fix their feelings for them, it deepens their shame of what's wrong with me. And it just creates a huge shame spiral that sometimes is really hard to get out of because, you know, all feelings are okay, but all behavior isn't. Right. And feelings need to be felt. And as parents, to be able to recognize our dysregulated state when our child's dysregulated, our own discomfort and match them and co-regulate with them requires we have to really have done our own work to some degree. I mean, I don't want to put pressure on parents out there thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, but it's really just more just being, again, curious of, of what does it feel like when my child is feeling uncomfortable and how do I want to fix it? And it's true because we don't have to have done the 20 years of psychotherapy. We have to have started the journey. We have to acknowledge it. Like my child's distress distresses me or triggers me. Once we're willing to do that, we're already on that path. Like we're halfway there because we're just acknowledging it. Wait, there's something deeper. This is about five-year-old me or two-year-old me. This is not entirely about my child, and it's not entirely about my parenting skill in that moment. Also, any one incident, any one situation is not going to have this massive impact on our children, unless it's something that is extremely traumatic. Like, we know the things that we could do that could absolutely alter our child's DNA forever, right? Like the harsh discipline or things like that, where we know not to do that. Any time that we're one time in misattunement, and then we come back and we say to the child, I didn't really attune to you very well. You were very sad and I was trying to hurry you along. Let's talk about that. Let, let me and now, let me give you that hug now. We can fix it, right? It's it's that qual- overall quality of interaction and our willingness to fix it, to tolerate that shame of I did this wrong. Let me say something to the child and let me fix it in some way in the sense that we can't fix it like we're going to make it perfect, but I can acknowledge, wait, I, I, I messed up there and that's okay. Sometimes moms mess up. Sometimes kids mess up. That's okay. Let's hug now. Let's repair now. That's fine. Right? Mm -hmm. So many times parents don't even, and again, that does go back to Alice Miller, like even the concept of a parent apologizing, right, Mm -hmm. is somehow this revolutionary thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's so true. Repair. So it's the rupture and repair. And it's when we get these ruptures and these interpersonal relationships over a period of time that don't get repaired, that the shame really starts to accumulate. So yeah, I think that's so important. And it's also what do we teach our kids when we come back and say, oh, my gosh, I really messed up today, didn't I? I didn't really mean to, you know, I shouldn't have yelled like that. Oh, my gosh. You know, we our kids learn that we're imperfect, too. And that's a big part of shame work, even with, you know, the therapist client relationship that I'm just like you. I'm not some expert up here that knows everything because that's shame inducing. I'm just a human being like you trying to write this new story and figure it out. And so that kind of you know, helps kids see that, you know, parents are 
imperfect too and that they kids don't have nobody nobody's perfect and we don't have to be perfect and we learn as we go and i just want to say when we're thinking about that too is sometimes what happens with the too good mother archetype is over repair you know right. they, they feel like oh my they've then their shame comes up so they try and over repair so i think it's always working within that oh i can repair it and then i'm going to come back and check in with myself about what's coming up for me around my not being a good enough mother and how I'm going to self-soothe myself and tell myself I'm doing the best I can instead of projecting onto the over-repair onto my child. We definitely want to repair. We just don't want to over-repair because that's our own work. I used to do an exercise in post-traumatic parenting where I would have moms say, I will sometimes make mistakes and like really say that, think about that, meditate on that, you know, write it down. And I had one mom who couldn't bring herself to do it. And we had a conversation about it afterwards. And she's like, I can't accept that. Like, I, I can't be the kind of parent I had. And I said, I, I understand that. You had an actively abusive parent. So you're going to do it differently. But you will sometimes make mistakes. Humans are imperfect. Humans make mistakes. And she said, no, you can't make a mistake when there's a small child depending on you. This is the one thing you must do perfectly. And yes, you're articulating what we all feel, that implicit sense deep down inside that mothers must do it perfectly, especially mothers. I think fathers hear it too, but differently. But we must do it perfectly because there's this tiny dependent creature that we are the only game in town for. And like, we must do it perfectly, but we have to accept. But then we had the conversation, of course, of D.W. Winnicott's idea that even the perfect is, you know, is even the, the beneficial is toxic in the excess, right? So perfect parenting is toxic, right? And it was just so difficult for her. And it was part of the journey. And she really articulated what a lot of post-traumatic parents say, which is, I can't do this wrong. I need to do this perfectly. And you're right. I know. I know. It's a thing. It's a real thing. That's why I did my dissertation on it. It's, 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 we, we have to be so much kinder and gentler with ourselves and know that we're learning as we go here. And it's a big learning curve right now. So, you know, just to give yourself permission to ask the questions and be curious and to breathe. That's why I like my ABCs, you know, acknowledge I got a feeling coming up. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to try curiosity, compassion, connection, courage. And I'm going to just enter into a whole new realm, a galaxy that's never I've never been to before. Right. And and realize that's a big deal. And that's how our kids learn, not from us trying to over parent and overdo and be perfect. I actually love that, that ABC exercise because anything that's an acronym, anything that you can be like, what am I supposed to do here now? And you can just really fast access it. That's what you need when you're under stress. It's really hard to remember multisyllabic words when you're under stress, but remembering ABC that we can do. That's why I did it. Exactly. Because our frontal lobe goes offline. So I wanted to give people something that would help them get at little, at least a little bit back online. Like, oh, I've got to feel. OK, breathe. Seashell. Right. So, yeah, that's why I did it. Because you're right. We we don't we're not going to remember. And then we then we shame ourselves. Like, why couldn't I have remembered that in that moment? You know, and we just we don't. And that's part of how all that that's part of this conversation is that being gentle with ourselves as we learn and we rewrite the story and how much of it is this dysregulated state in our body that overrides, you know, rational thought. And, and that's okay. Cause we're all kind of learning. 
This is so fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really helpful. How can members of the post-traumatic parenting community find you if they want to learn more? Everything pretty much is on my website, which is pattyashley.com. And I spell my name with an I, P-A-T-T-I-A-S-H-L-E-Y. I've got a course called Going Not Out, a free course. And then I also have one that my daughter, who's also a school psychologist and parent educator, we we have our little uh, work that we're doing called The Moms in Real Life. And so she's amazing because she has two little ones now and I have the grown ones. And so we share this perspective in the two generations, which, like I said, really a lot of this stuff, we're still working on that. So that course is on there. My books are on there. I have another course on grief, too. So I will link to all of this in the show notes. So those of you who want to find Dr. Ashley, you'll be able to find her. It'll be in the show notes. Of course, you can look on my Instagram where I link to her. And thank you so much. I think this was so helpful for everybody in the post-traumatic parenting community who really wanted to understand shame much better. We really appreciate well, it. Thanks for having me, Robin. And one more thing I just want to say on uh, May 7th before Mother's Day, I'm launching a workbook for moms that some of your parents might be interested in called Illuminating the Shadow. So it's a workbook to go with my book and my daughter and I are going to do a Facebook Live. So join my Dr. Patty Ashley Facebook page as well. Terrific. We will link to that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Really appreciated it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that, but podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.